If you will, open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. I will remind you, if you think of the book of 2 Corinthians, it has a different purpose in mind than from what 1 Corinthians had. 1 Corinthians was to correct problems relating to the behavior of the congregation. Those things were revealed by the household of Chloe and also revealed by the questions they had written Paul. You get to 2 Corinthians, it is the most personal of all Paul's epistles because within them, Paul has to defend himself personally. And that's a much different uh, thing to do than to defend the truth. When you have to start defending yourself, uh, it requires you to say some things and do some things you might not want to do. Well, I want you to read with me verses 1 through 3, and we're going to continue in Paul's defense of himself. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you. You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Now, um, Paul's going to begin this chapter with a question. And the question is, do we need, or do we begin again to commend ourselves? Now, uh, I want to begin, first of all, by asking the question, how hard is it for a person to brag on themselves? Some people not very hard. Okay, some people not very hard. But uh, let me give you an illustration or two. Uh, You're called in for a job interview. And you go in for a job interview, what do they want you to tell them? They want you to tell them how much you know and what you can do. Now, uh, imagine if you're a preacher now. I just want to put this in terms... I've been fortunate. I have not had to do a whole lot of interviewing for preaching positions. Y'all understand that? You know, uh, you know, I had to... But many times when people do have to go for interviews for preaching, what they want to know is, how smart are you? How much Bible do you know? Number two, how good are you at preaching? How good are you at doing personal work? Now, would you think it would be easy for a person to say, Well, I want you to know I'm one of the smartest guys around. Uh, I know more than most of the other preachers around. Uh, and you talk about work, well, I can outwork it. Would that sound very good to hear from a preacher? Why not? Okay, so you've got this issue on the one hand, you've got, you're supposed to present yourself, 
And on the other hand, you're supposed to be humble. And those two aspects are a little bit difficult to reconcile, aren't they? When Paul is going to boast, and that's the term he's going to use here in 2 Corinthians, is it something that he wants to do? No, he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to come across as saying, hey, here I am. But he is being forced into this position. And you say, well, why is he being forced into it? Because there are people who have arrived at Corinth who are saying Paul is not a legitimate apostle. And because he's not a legitimate apostle, he doesn't come with the authority that we do. They are false apostles. He's a real apostle. And so Paul is hinting at something here in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? What is he talking about? I know you all know what he's talking about. Okay. Letters of reference. Uh, for instance, um, quite frequently, especially our young people, when they get ready to go out and get a job, they need a letter of reference. Of course, if you've never worked much, how easy is it for you to get a letter of reference? It's not. So usually they want a personal reference, and so they'll come to me sometimes and say, well, you write a... a a reference letter for me. I'm sure I'm glad to. I've known you since you were a little kid. Of course, I have to be careful not to say, I remember when they ran around the church building hooping and hollering, you know. But you want letters of reference. Why do you need letters of reference? Validation. Validation? Why, why do they need to have a letter sent to them saying... I know this person and I know his character because they don't know them. Do you understand that? If you don't know somebody, you need that letter that explains who they are, where they came from, what they are. And let me illustrate to you, this is a biblical pattern. I want you to turn back with me to the book of Acts chapter 18. Let's go back to Acts 18, verse 24. Now, there's several instances of this, but I'm just going to use one of them to make my point. Acts 18, 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria... An eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. 
when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. And for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now I want you to notice verse 27. Where is he at? Not where is he going, but where is he at? He's at Ephesus. Where is he from originally? Where's that? Egypt. So... Here's a man who has an Egyptian background. He has gone to Ephesus, which is today in the country of Turkey. He wants to go to Achaia, which is where Corinth and Athens is at, which is in the country of Greece. Do the brethren know him? Not very well. He's been going to the synagogue at Ephesus. But when he gets up and he starts teaching, what do Aquila and Priscilla realize? He's not fully knowledgeable. So they take him aside. They explain to him the rest of what he needs to know. Okay, now Apollos knows what he needs to know. He wants to go to Achaia, perhaps Corinth, perhaps Athens, perhaps Sincreus, one of those areas over there around Achaia. But what are they going to do? They're going to write a letter. Why are they going to write a letter? What's the purpose of the letter? It's a reference letter. So that they can know that Apollos is a good man worthy of being received. Because if Apollos arrives and he says, Hey, I'm here, I'm a Christian, and I'm a good teacher... I know the Bible real well, and the Bible does say he knew the Bible real well, and he was very eloquent. So rather than Apollos having to go in and say, Guys, this is who I am, he brings a letter from the brethren at Ephesus. Does that make sense? Would you think that made sense for Apollos to bring a letter? Yes. Well, let's go back to now 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's look at the question that Paul asked. Because this is real significant. He says, Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or from you? Did Paul, would Paul need a letter of commendation to the Corinthians? Why not? They knew him. How would they know him? He's the one that established the church there. It's very likely he baptized several of them there. Would y'all need a letter from me right now to know who I am? I'd hope not. Well, Paul didn't need a letter either. What about a letter from them to go everywhere else he went? Where are they going to send a letter Paul hadn't already preached? I mean, are they going to send one to Athens? Are they going to send one to Ephesus? Are they going to send one to Philippi? Paul's already preached there. He established congregations there as well. What are they going to tell them that he had not already? What this hints at is, number one, the validation of Paul being who he says he is. Number two, it hints at authority. Now, let me uh, direct your attention back to another situation. 
when Paul went to Damascus to lock up Christians to bring them back in chains, how did he go? Did he decide one day, hey, I want to go and do this? He had letters from the chief priests and elders at Jerusalem. Now, you have to read between the lines because of what all is found in 2 Corinthians, but let me summarize it for you. Evidently, the people who have arrived here in Corinth are from Judea, Jerusalem. And they are coming, perhaps, with letters saying, here's our credentials, here's our validation. Now, where's Paul's validation? Where's Paul's credentials? Now, can people make up letters? Yes. They've done it. People today do it all the time. They get caught many times. But in Paul's day, they did as well. They were called pseudonymous. Or they would write in someone else's name. Uh, In fact, there's a whole bunch of books that claim to be religious books that's referred to as the pseudepigrapha. Anybody ever heard that name before? Have you ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? The Acts of Peter? Those are all what's called pseudepigrapha, false writings that claim to be in the name of somebody that's not accurate. Well, these people here have arrived and they're questioning Paul's credentials. So Paul's response to them is look at verse 2. You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. If you're looking for Paul's validation for his uh, a proof, where do you look? You look at the churches he's established. He established the one there at Corinth. They are his epistle. They're not written with ink. He said, they're written in our hearts. And how many people can read that letter? Everybody, known and read of all men. Everybody can look and see what you are at Corinth and know that I have done that. Now, verse 3 is going to raise another illustration that Paul is going to take off on as he goes further in this chapter. Clearly... You are an epistle of Christ ministered by us. They are an epistle of the Lord. They're not Paul's epistle. They're the Lord's epistle. Ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Now, here's where he gets important. Not on tablets of stone. Now, let me ask you a question. When you start looking at writing materials, what kind of things did they write on? Okay. The two main sources of paper were called papyri, which comes from the papyrus plant in Egypt. It's a stalk. I don't know if some of you remember when we did our studies of the you know, Bible geography. When we were in Egypt, uh, they would take this plant, they would cut it in real thin uh, strips, and they would roll it out and dry it, and they'd put it together, and they'd make paper, and that's called papyri. 
And uh, they would ride on that. But not everywhere grew those kinds of plants. For instance, you get in other parts of the area where it's not as dry as Egypt, then those plants don't grow. So when you go to places like uh, Turkey today, Asia Minor, then you have people there who are looking for writing paper and they don't have any. And in fact, Alexandria had put an embargo on paper going there. So the king of Pergamum said, we're going to have to find something else to write on. So they took lamb skin, they stretched it real tight and dried it, and that's called parchment. Papyrized paper made out of reed, parchment's made by animal skin. And if you start looking at the ancient manuscripts on which the Bible is written, some are written on papyri, some are written on parchment, animal skins. Paper was very valuable then. What do we do with paper today? You type up a sheet of paper and you don't, and you're through with it. You wad it up, throw it in the garbage can. Do you know what they did with it? They recycled it. If it was the papyri, they would try to bleach it out again so they could write on it. If it was parchment, they would take a pen knife and scrape the letters off. You know, there's some manuscripts that they have found that when they put them up to the light, they can see where the original letters were and they're looking at something that has been recycled. And uh, that's amazing to see some of those manuscripts like that. So here he's talking about that. So if their common writing uh, material was papyri or parchment, what is he referring to when he talks about that which was written on stone? The Ten Commandments, which was written on stone. And who wrote it? God. God. It was written by the finger of God. You had his handwriting on those stones. That's important because of what he is going to begin to talk about and what's going to follow. Do you have any questions on verses 1 through 3? I've got a, a question. When you start looking at this, uh, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because of questions, people have asked, what about placing membership? Do you need to do that or do you not need to do that? And uh, so I thought about this is a good place to bring this up because people say, where in the Bible do you see people placing membership? Well, I, I point them to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So when a person is going to go from another congregation to be received or to be accepted, they usually brought a letter with them. But that indicates that they wanted to be a part of that congregation. So... Uh, what I think there is in this, the idea of people going to a congregation being received and accepted by them. I want to give you just a little more than that. If you'll turn with me to uh, the book of Second, uh, not Second, yeah, Second John. Second John. We're going to look at verses 9 and following, and then we'll look at Third John, verses 10 and following. These are these one-letter epistles. I'm not going to spend long on this, but I was asked that question. 
in verse 9 of 2 John, he said, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Notice now, he says, do not receive him. What does that mean, to receive him? Well, let's flip over to Third John now for just a second. I'm going to pick up with verse 9 here again. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind the deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. If you take those together, the words receive and put out, does that not indicate that the church is a body and either you receive somebody into the church or you don't receive them into the church? Or you put they were putting people out of the church. Of course, he wasn't supposed to be doing that. But uh, the idea is, is that I believe the Bible indicates that when people come to a congregation, they ought to say, we want to be a part of it. We want to be received into the, the fellowship. And we just generally call that placing membership. That lets the elders know that they can depend on you to do something, to be a part of the congregation. Uh, they know to watch out for your souls. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. So I think that's an indication of where we would find it. Here's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as well as 2 and 3 John. Anybody have any questions, comments? Well, you wasn't the one that asked this one, but <laughs> you got it later. Okay. Well, uh, there's not a pattern of how it has to be done. Here, if you want to place membership, you just contact one of the elders and say, I'd like to place membership. And one or two of them will get with you and they can uh, discuss with you about becoming a member here. And I'd encourage you, if you've not done that, do so, so that they can, uh, you can work with us here. Let's pick... That was much more common years ago than it is today, but I, I think it's a good policy uh, to do that. But not everybody goes to a congregation where elders do that, so it's, it's a good policy. Okay, let's pick up with verse 4 now, and we'll read through verse 6. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. When you read those three verses, you almost get the feeling that you're picking up in the middle of a conversation. Uh, it, have any of you ever been talking with somebody and they start talking about something and you don't know what they're talking about because you've missed something earlier? I find that all the time. I'm, 
I'm walking up and somebody's in the middle of a conversation and I'm listening and I'm hearing part of a conversation, I'm like, I don't have a clue what's going on. But as you listen a little bit longer or if you someone explains to you what's been said, then you say, oh, I got it. I want you to look back with me earlier in chapter 2 and I want to back up to verses 14 through 17 because this really explains where Paul's coming from. Now, thanks be to God who leads us in triumph, always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. And uh, He talks about verse 16, To the one we are the aroma of death to death, to another the aroma of life to life. Then He asks us a question, the latter part of verse 16, And who is sufficient for these things? What do you mean by being sufficient? Well, let me explain to you what the word means. Back earlier in chapter 2, when he was talking about the brother that was punished, back in chapter 2, verse 6, he said the punishment which was afflicted by the majority was sufficient for such a man. What does the word sufficient mean? Enough? And uh, I don't believe any preacher I know of, if you ask them, do you believe that you are adequate for the task? What do you think most preachers would say? No, I do the best I can. There's no preacher I know of feels like he delivers the best, most eloquent sermon that he ought to be able to deliver. Um... I cannot stand to listen to recordings of myself. You know why? I hear every mistake and I cringe. Some of you hear them and cringe as well, but most of you are much more benevolent and just are able to pass by. But it really disturbs me. I realize my mistakes and so I don't even like to listen to them. But you realize that when you ask, well, are you adequate? Are you sufficient for the job that God has given you to do? When God called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of the Egyptian bondage, what did Moses say? Lord, I can't do this. I'm nobody. And uh, I can't speak. God said, don't say that, Moses. I'll let Aaron be your spokesman for you. He can speak. Lord, find somebody else. No, I've chosen you, Moses. When you come to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, Lord, I'm but a youth. I can't do this. God said, I'll be with you. Paul is saying, not that our sufficiency is from ourselves. None of us are capable of saying, I've got it all together myself. I, I'm capable. Look, let's go back now to verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul is here trying to negate his necessity of boasting. The fact that he's had to commend himself. That he's had to say, look what I am capable of doing. Uh, 
Look who I am. Because he wants them to say, I don't you think I'm doing this because of who I am. My sufficiency is not for me. Back up in chapter 2, verse 16 again. And who is sufficient for these things? And that's the key that he's trying to address here. Verse 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. When you read the words new covenant, what comes to mind? New Testament? Okay. If you got a new one, you had to first have a what? Old one. And uh, when you start thinking about that, you go back to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, in those days I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers when I led them out of the hand of land of Egypt. You see, God is saying, I've got a new covenant. So Paul has said he's made us sufficient ministers of a new covenant. And he goes on to say, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now when you read that, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, what comes to your mind? Letter and Spirit. I read one commentator online this past week who said, well, what he meant by that is you didn't have to keep the letter of the law, you just had to keep the spirit of the law. Okay. The word letter is a code word, a synonym, an idiom, if you will, of the Old Testament. And you say, well, why do you call it letter? Well, the word for letter is grama, and from which we get our English word grammar, grammatic, and it, it refers to a writing of letters. Paul had just talked about the writing of letters earlier. He says, we're not talking about writing that's done on tablets of stone, but are on the tablets of the flesh, the heart. What he's trying to draw here is attention that the letter he's referring to is that Old Testament law written and engraved on stones. And you say, well, now how do you know he's talking about that which was written and engraved on stones? Well, let's drop down here and look and see what uh, he says beginning about verse uh, 7. But at the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones. Okay, I know what he's talking about then. What was it written and engraved on stones? The Ten Commandments. So he is describing the Old Testament here. So he says not of the letter. We would say not of the Old Testament, but of the Spirit. For the letter does what? Kills. But the Spirit gives life. Now, you know, I'm in the point now, I'm trying to think, what does he mean? 
The letter kills. The Old Testament law kills. Why would he call it a ministry of death? What could the law do? That Old Testament. Okay, it could show a man that he was in sin. That's Romans 7, 7 through 14. What could it do about saving your soul? Couldn't save your soul. Only the blood of Christ could do that. So it was a ministry of death. It showed you your sin was, according to Paul, exceedingly sinful. It's a ministry of death. That Old Testament law brought death, but what does the New Testament law do? It brings life. And so what he is going to begin here in verse 7, going through verse 11, really it's going to go through the end of the chapter, is this strong contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you say, well, is Paul really anti-Old Testament? Is he, is he against the Old Testament? Well, why is, what's he trying to point out then? It's over with. What do you suppose these false teachers who are here at Corinth are teaching? They're teaching that the Old Testament is still binding. How do I know that? Acts 15. Certain people came from Jerusalem to Antioch saying, unless you keep the customs of Moses, that you cannot be saved. That's Acts 15. When you look at the end of chapter 2, verse 17, for we're not as so many peddling the Word of God. Are they actually teaching some of God's Word? If somebody's peddling the Word of God, yes, they are. But he says they're not doing with sincerity and they're not doing so through the Spirit of Christ. So I'd suggest to you the background behind this is what we sometimes refer to as Judaizing teachers. There are people who are saying you've got to keep the Old Testament. You've got to keep following that Old Testament law. And they're saying this Paul is preaching you some new doctrine. We're preaching to the Old Testament, what you know is right. Well, I want you to pick up, I want to read verses 7 through 11 here. I haven't got but just a few minutes. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the Spirit, our ministry of the Spirit, not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds with much more glory, or much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Now he's going to talk about. Moses and his face shining. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35, you can read about this. But let me tell you the way that it happened. I'll just summarize it for you. Moses went in to speak with God. When he went in to speak with God, Moses' face was not covered. 
And after speaking with God, Moses came out and his face would glow. Now, I don't know that I could describe to you what that would exactly look like. The same original word is used to describe the radiance of the sun. Uh, It's like something that's bright, it's hard to look at. But after Moses had been out from speaking with God a while, the glow, the radiance began to dissipate, began to go away. And then his face began to look like normal again. And so what Moses would do, he would put a veil over his face so that people couldn't see that glory departing. Now, if you want to see that, look at um, verse 13. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So Paul's got a point here. He says, just like when Moses went to speak with God, did the Old Testament law have glory? It must have, or Moses' face wouldn't have shown, would it? Was the Old Testament the words of God? Yes, it was. Was it good, to use Paul's question? Yes. That's Romans chapter 7, if you want to study Romans chapter 7. He said, because of his glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Verse 7, the latter part of verse 7. That glory was passing away. He says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds in glory. If the Old Testament was good, and it's not as good as the New Testament, the glory of the New Testament is even greater. And that's what his point is. In verses 6 through 11, or 7 through 11, is the fact that the New Testament is more glorious than the Old Testament. Now I want to take verses 12 and following just as much as time will allow here. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, the veil lies on their hearts. Now I want to stop here because I'm going to run out of time. Before I finish, he's going to use an illustration. That veil stayed over Moses' face till the glory passed away. He says there's a same sense today in which these people, when they hear Moses read, they think, yeah, that's right. And he says it's like they've got a veil over their hearts that they can't see the passing of that Old Testament law. Are there people today who still have a veil over their hearts that they can't see the end of the Old Testament law? Yes. They believe the Old Testament is still binding. Of course, what I find is most people who believe the Old Testament is still binding, they don't believe it's all still binding. They'll say, yeah, we need to remember the Ten Commandments. But when I ask them, do you remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? 
And they say, what do you mean by that? Well, did you mow your grass on Saturday? If you did, you violated the Sabbath if you're under that law. Did you eat your bacon for breakfast? If you did, you violated that law. Have you been to Jerusalem and offered your sacrifice on the Day of Atonement? Well, no. There's not a temple there to offer it anymore. Well, then that Old Testament law is done away with. Nobody today keeps the Old Testament law. Nobody. Not a Jew in Jerusalem. You know why? They can't. Because God saw the temple destroyed in AD 70 and it's over with. Now, I know there's a bunch of people who want to start it back up again. But you know when they start it back up again, they're going to have one major problem. No priest. Because they don't know what tribe they're from. They say, I'm a Jew, but they don't know if they're from the tribe of Benjamin or if they're from the tribe of Levi. And so they're going to have a problem with that. I've run out of time. I really intended to finish chapter 3. What we will do, Lord willing, next week is we'll pick up with verse 15 and start there with our discussion uh, of the class.